Welcome to another episode of the Chronically Healing Podcast with your hosts, Jesse Fritz and Christina Singera. We are so excited to have you back for another episode. Can't believe we're already well into season two. Today's episode is with Rachel Hill of the Invisible Hypothyroidism. And we have a feeling you're going to really enjoy this candid conversation. Something that stood out for me is how our journeys are all so unique. We really dove into dogma in the thyroid and chronic illness space and how what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. We dove into a topic that is near and dear to my heart, which is becoming your own advocate. One of the reasons that I personally decided to become a coach in the first place was seeing so many women go to the doctor only to be let down and told that it's basically all in their head or some other excuse versus let's actually listen to the patient and see what it is that could be going on beneath the surface, even though maybe their blood work is quote unquote normal. We also talk about that too, because as you know, if you're a thyroid warrior, blood work can appear normal, but you do not feel normal. You might still have a litany of those 300 plus thyroid symptoms going on in your body, brain, and all the things. So this was a really great conversation. I also loved how we touched on mental health. I think that is so incredibly important, and I think we need to talk about that as often as possible, how to care for ourselves as HSPs was another one. So if you're a highly sensitive person, you're probably loving our episodes lately because we've been diving into this topic quite a bit. And I know me personally being an HSP, it feels so validating to know that it's okay that I'm sensitive to noise and sensitive to light and all these other things that I used to think something was wrong with me. I needed to go to the doctor and do blood work and figure out what might be going haywire when really it's just how I'm wired. And now I can honor that and I know my thresholds and yeah. So we hope you enjoy this episode. And I do just want to mention if you have not already subscribed to the podcast on your favorite player of choice, we would love that. If you're on Apple iTunes, even if you're not, we would really, really love if you could go over and leave us a review. Reviews are what help us reach more and more and more people. So the more reviews we have, the higher we climb on those charts. That's always so, so, so helpful. And then if you haven't joined our community, we have an amazing community on Facebook. It's called the Chronically Healing Community. And each week we post about the episode, but I also post a question to get everyone engaged. And it always sparks some good conversation around the healing journey that you know that one of the reasons Jesse founded Chronically Healing is to focus on the positive aspects of this journey rather than just what isn't working or what could be what we desire to change. And that's what I love about this community. We focus on the things we desire to change, but also on what is working? What can we do? What are the solutions to these problems that we're having? And I think that's just a really good spin because it's so easy to go into that spiral when we've been struggling for so long. So enjoy the episode and here we go. Hi everyone. Welcome back to the Chronically Healing Podcast. My name is Jesse Fritz and I'm here with my co-host Christina Sangara. We're so excited to be back with you for another week and another episode. Today we're actually talking to a repeat guest. So excited. <laughs> we're excited to talk to Rachel Hill again today. She talks so much about living with Hashimoto's 
hypothyroidism online on Instagram and on her blog. And I'm really excited to chat with her again today. So welcome to the show, Rachel. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah. Can you just give us a little tidbit about who you are, what you do, things like that. So everybody that hasn't listened to your previous episode can get a little refresh. Yes. Yeah, so um, as you said, I'm Rachel Hill. I'm the face behind the Invisible Hypothyroidism, um, which is a thyroid patient advocacy blog. I started that about six or seven years ago now, um, and it quickly spiraled into my social media accounts, my email newsletters, and all the kind of stuff that I do. I've also written two books. Um, and yeah, I just talk about the whole experience of living with Hashimoto's hypothyroidism and the stuff that often comes hand in hand with it. So anxiety, depression, um, being a HSP, which we might touch on later, often mm. seems to tie into a lot of people's experiences too. Um, and yeah, the many, I guess, jigsaw puzzle pieces that we often have to slot into place to get our health back on track. Um, mm-hmm. And through all of that, um, I just try to be as as honest and I guess as authentic as possible in terms of representing that healing and recovery often isn't linear and there are often a lot of ups and downs and even as I've experienced personally when we got our health when we get our health back to a really good place it often doesn't stay there and there'll be life events or things that can you know make things change again and then you've got to go back to certain things and revisit things um, and yeah and it's I'm, I'm just all about kind of sharing the whole experience um, I'm just trying to represent every stage that that we're all kind of at and going through I guess yeah that was like what drew me to you initially was your authenticity when I because I had known I had hypothyroidism for a while but I um didn't know I had Hashimoto's and I just like didn't know what to do you know I had I got the same thing that I'm sure all of us have gotten and everybody listening to hypo (laughs) that has hypo is listening to is like you get put on a pill and if you're not within the range, then they'll give you something else. And then if you are within range, they just kind of leave you at the door. And um, I really enjoyed or I started following you because of your authenticity and because you weren't necessarily there was either the, the Facebook groups that were talking about how everybody with Hashimoto's was going to die alone. And then there was the people that were like, I have hypothyroidism and I cured it and I'm perfect and I'm wonderful all the time. And there wasn't like that in between. So I really enjoyed that and still do enjoy that about your content. And like you said, too, I know you bring in like life events. I know you've talked about like uh, exercise intolerance before and how that's affected you. And I know that your pregnancies you've talked about as well. And I think that that's really helpful for the people in, in the space. So we thank you for that, for being authentic. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I strongly feel in the, in the world of social media, social media land in particular, you just, you do tend to get those polar opposites of people either in like a really hopeless um, kind of dark place perhaps they've just been diagnosed and they just don't know what to do and like you say you're given a pill that you're told will solve everything and then you're sent on your way and for a lot of us that's just not what happens it doesn't cure everything and give us the, give us our health back um, and then you'll get the sort of accounts that like you say sort of promises cures and like quick ways to beat it and there was just this space in between that was seriously lacking and so mm-hmm. I've been doing this for six or seven years or so at the time there just didn't seem to be anyone in that middle space and thankfully now um it's like really populated with a lot of people just sharing like the honest ups and downs the things that we can do to 
get our health back on track, the things that we can do to take more control and feel more in control of what's going on, um, as well as just being honest about the fact that we all still have flare days or weeks that are a bit harder or like for me in particular, I'm currently pregnant um, with my second child and compared to my first pregnancy, which was very straightforward, um, my thyroid levels have gone crazy this time around and mm. it's been much harder to keep on top of it. And it's, although it, although it can be hard to be vulnerable and share all that stuff sometimes, I just feel like it's so important that we do because people need that honesty out there and they need to find people they can relate to. And I guess trust as well to give like the whole perspective. Mm-hmm. I resonate so much with all of that. One of the things that you said I really wanted to draw out is that we often take the pill and we're sad that it didn't solve all the different things that we initially went to the doctor for. And I know for me personally and countless others, what I always like to say is the pill gets you to baseline Mm -hmm. and then the the work you're doing can actually work. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think the opposite, right? The pill will solve all the things. What I've come to find, I'm sure you probably see this too, is so many of the symptoms that we experience have less to do with the thyroid itself and more to do with that just disease process in general, the Mm -hmm. chronic inflammation and all the other things that just cause that cascade of issues. And then I also, so when I had my kids, same thing. My my numbers were all over the freaking place. They were really weird about giving me T3. I did have to push for it. Mm-hmm. I saw your your reel about that. So I empathize with that. And it's funny how pregnancy can be such a I don't know, just shakes things up 100%. I was on triple the dose when I was pregnant. Wow. I think I was on I'm usually well back then, so I'm not on NDT anymore cuz the recalls were stressing me out, but <laughs> I I think I was on 1 grain prior to pregnancy and then during pregnancy by the end i was on three grains Mm. which is just a shitload of thyroid (laughs) medication uh but i remember that so yeah i'm just yeah i totally remember that and uh that was a wild ride and then trying to get back to my normal they were just like yeah just stop taking that and go back to your normal i'm like wait i'm not supposed to titrate down from three grains you know right yeah, so, I mean, that's, that, that's a lot. I think in my first pregnancy, I was just on armor thyroid um, and I started it on three grains. I've always been on quite a high dose mm. and um, I was expecting the dose to go up much sooner, but it wasn't until I was in like the last two months of pregnancy that then my levels changed and I needed only an extra half a grain and it was, that was it. Everything was like optimized wow. and I felt really good again. And then this time around, um, for the last year or so before I fell pregnant, I'd been on a combination of still three grains of MDT at Armour Thyroid uh, with just 25 micrograms, so a tiny amount of levothyroxine alongside because mm. it's going through that pregnancy and then postpartum. The mm. NDT just doesn't work in quite the same way. I need an extra bit of T4. So that has brought things back into like a good place for a year. Um, and I think that's it going through this pregnancy this time. My T3 levels are fine, but it's my, the levothyroxine just needs to keep being up because my mm. T4 suddenly tanks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it just, it really keeps you on your toes. Um, and even as I would say, like, I'm a very well experienced and knowledgeable patient advocate, I'm still constantly learning and I'll, I will never claim to know everything there is to know because it's impossible. Our mm. bodies react to even pregnancies, they can react completely different completely differently to with each one or yeah you know like a life event happens like moving house or starting a new job or you lose a loved one and then that can do crazy things to your body and your thyroid and 
like you just touched on a few minutes ago, it's it's not always just about your thyroid anyway. Things mm-hmm. like the sort of your stress levels and that impacts your adrenal glands and those hormones, and then your gut health and inflammation and just everything. Um, there's just so much to look at and so much to consider. And it can be such an overwhelming world out there if you have no clue where to begin. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I, I haven't had a... Oh, I, I guess I can't say that I've never been pregnant before I have, but I haven't had a, what is it? How do I even say it? I've had a miscarriage, but I haven't had like a full term pregnancy before, but even just like with that, it totally messed everything up. Like my miscarriage, I just like my levels were whack for a while, but I remember when I was on levothyroxine, that was the first thing that I was on. They, I remember wishing that I would have high levels. Like I remember going to the doctor and being like, I hope to God that my levels are high enough that they'll give me more because I am so sick still. And I have heard that from other people too, just like this, you know, because at the time, like we're talking about, I was, I was dependent on the medication. That was the only thing I knew. I didn't know you could do anything else. And, and it can be like really, um, just like really hard to try to figure that out. And like, I've switched, I've been on three different types of medication and each doctor will try to like change me around. And it's just really stressful, the whole medication thing. And like trying to find a doctor to work with who will advocate for you, who will look at your levels the way you want them to look at. And, and even knowing which levels to look at, I know that's something that you talk a lot about. I know Christina, you do too, of like, these are the level or these are the, the thyroid tests that you should even be getting because a lot of places don't even do the full tests. Right. Well, and I've been learning a little bit more lately because we always hear th- I think this is a good segue for our thyroid people because medication to me is the biggest headache for so many people, especially mm. if they're working with an endo. And mm. recently my, so I've been learning more about the thyroid and I used to have the opinion that TSH being suppressed is good across the board for everyone. What I'm learning through my research is for some people, they pump out more fight or flight hormones when their TSH is suppressed. Mm. And that was really eye-opening because I had never never even thought about that. And it makes sense why for me personally, when my TSH gets suppressed, I instantly feel more anxious, my Mm. sleep gets weird, but yet my T4 and my T3 are like low normal. They, you know, they're normal, but they're not amazing. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting. And back to the point of it just being really complex. What I'm learning is everyone is really freaking unique. Yeah. Someone can be suppressed TSH and be exhausted and basically completely hypothyroid. And then there's me who truly does start to feel hyper mm-hmm. when my TSH is suppressed. And what that tells me is we really have to honor our individuality and outside of anyone else's opinion, we have to also check in with ourselves. What does our body need, right? What shift is our body experiencing when we're making these changes? Mm -hmm. And I had really gotten away from that because I was looking at all of the advice and feeling like I had to follow this template versus it being something that is a starting point. And then we can kind of design what we need from there. That's a random tangent, but I just, I'm saying that from my own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm starting to learn because I used to give people blanket advice, right? So, you know, I would, hey, this is how you advocate for yourself. Do this, do this, do this. And now I'm realizing, well, but let's also take a step back and see how we're actually feeling. 
that's the number one thing. Same thing with the sleep journey. How are you feeling when you wake up versus what your Fitbit says? Mm -hmm. So I do think there's a little bit of going inward that has to happen on this journey that sometimes we forget to do because we're reading everything else outside of ourselves. We really lose that self-intuition and we lose that, that kind of ability to discern what is and isn't working regardless of the numbers, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess as well, none of us if if any any of us at all um had our thyroid levels tested when we were actually healthy and way before we developed the health condition so we have no clue of knowing what our own personal optimized thyroid levels are and so we have to keep working to figure out what that is and sometimes it changes as well like yes I know for me personally I've only ever felt well when my TSH is suppressed but I'm also on a T3 containing medication which naturally suppresses your TSH a lot easier my TSH will remain suppressed and at the same number, even if my 3T4 or 3T3 drop below the range, not just low in range, but if they go below the range, which I have done, my TSH still doesn't change. And so I know for me personally, and my doctor knows for me personally, TSH really isn't that important in terms of where my thyroid levels correlate to how I'm physically feeling. Mm. Whereas like you say, for other people, it really does. And it's, it's certainly a part of that thyroid um, health picture and you just can't put everything on one of those markers when it's only, you know, one fifth of a, a thyroid panel, essentially. Um, so, yeah, it's just a case of taking it all into account and then fine tuning and figuring out what really works for you. I know for me personally, I feel best when my 3T4 is around the middle of the range and my 3T3 is kind of middle to like, I guess, the, the other the top half of the range. Um but um, yeah, TSH doesn't mean an awful lot. And I know when my Hashimoto's comes out of remission because I can feel that like more than anything. Um, mm. Being in, it's in remission now still and has been for a year or so, but for about six months after giving birth to my, my last son, um, it just kind of went crazy again. The Hashimoto's started to go up and I could feel it before we had that blood test. And I knew exactly what the test was going to come back to say <laughs> because after so many years, I've, I've just kind of got fine tuned into that. But it's only time and experience and trial and error will will help you gain that insight. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really do. I love what you said there. I, I feel like if we can get back to a place where we trust our bodies too. I did a video on that recently. We lose trust in our bodies over time because we've been sick for so long. We've had symptoms for so long that we start to feel like our body is against us. We start to think of our symptoms as an attack versus what they really are, which is a message. Hey, help. I need help. <laughs> if you had someone drowning in a lake, you wouldn't be like, all right, cool. Have a good drown. You know, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to go save them. And I always try to think about that when I'm getting these messages. And I think if we get back to trusting our body, then we can work in tandem with someone who listens to us, who's mm -hmm. okay with us having an opinion. How many providers are not okay with us having an opinion outside of the normal narrative? Even my TSH right now is still low. I think it's 0. Two, it's really it's pretty low relative to what they are comfortable with but i have an endocrinologist who's okay with that because i said i don't feel hyper so i just want to mm. stay here yeah <laughs> let's just stay here i feel i feel stable i felt stable <laughs> for a while do not change my dose <laughs> 
And it, I think that's a big piece too, is regardless of which direction we go in and how we do it, we have to have people in our corner who treat us like people who understand that we live in our bodies 23 hours a day. We're with them that hour, if that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think having that provider, what you mentioned is so true. Having a good doctor, uh, whether it's natural or Western, super, super helpful for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's, there's this saying that um, kind of correlates with what you were just saying about your body sending signals. It says it's something along the line of your body whispers before it screams. Yes. Mm. Um, and it's our job to listen to those whispers because by the time it's screaming, something's really wrong. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. And oftentimes by the time it's screaming, it's so much harder to reverse that disease process, which is why I think we struggle so much on the thyroid journey. By the time we go to the doctor, especially with Hashimoto's, we've usually had enough tissue destruction to really be feeling that shift. And it's going to be a little bit of a battle to get back to baseline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to talk about because I had um, my friend Alyssa Boyer on and she is like an HSP, highly sensitive person expert. Um, and I think that it's becoming something that more and more people are getting interested in. I know that because her account went from like 1000 to like 68,000 followers within a couple of months, because I think people are like resonating with it. And I, I wanted to talk to you about this, Rachel, because I know you and I have kind of talked about this a little bit before, but like, what do you think the correlation is between being in HSP and how that can affect chronic illness, because we talked about this in that episode, but I also feel like I notice a lot of people who have chronic illness also are HSPs. And <laughs> so I'm just kind of wondering what your take on all that is. Yeah. So as a HSP, um, for those that perhaps aren't too sure, it, it involves having, um, I guess, traits you could say such as being a bit more sensitive to loud noises perhaps jumping at loud noises um you're, you're trying to fall asleep at night and there's this one tap downstairs that's dripping and you absolutely can't sleep unless you turn it off um I know for me with my husband there are so many things that he will say how can you smell that or how did you <laughs> hear that that was so, so far away and yeah, I didn't realize I was a HSP until about three or four years ago. And when I did, a lot of things just suddenly made sense. And as I slotted it into part of this like chronic illness thyroid puzzle, I realized where it tied in a lot in terms of working on my adrenal health. Um, Dr. Elaine Aaron, who's um, kind of the head of a lot of the HSP research stuff, her book, The Highly Sensitive Person, she talks in there about how HSPs um, have higher like baseline average levels of cortisol than people who are not HSPs and so if you even look at that for those of us that do relate as being highly sensitive people we're more likely to have higher cortisol levels and therefore feel more stressed if we're more stressed we're more likely to get stuck in the stress cycle and trigger disease and then get um, stuck in a place of I guess not really getting on top of that disease and symptoms and it all just kind of manifests and drives each other and forms this big cycle and once I could understand that I was a HSP and what that meant and what things I could implement day to day to I guess like be kinder to that part of myself and nurture that a bit more and take that into consideration my adrenal health I had chronically high cortisol levels at the time came back down and resolved fairly quickly um, I 
I kind of implemented things such as changing the way that I exercised so that I was doing more restorative Mm. um, exercises, more things like going for walks and yoga or even dancing, things that would lift my mood, that would um, encourage me to slow down, to switch off, to kind of calm the craziness going on in my brain that you often get as a HSP because you get overstimulated much more easily than the average person, making time for meditation or self-care which doesn't it, it doesn't just mean bubble baths and face masks it, it can be going for a walk it can be um cooking a nice meal for yourself it mm-hmm. can be um reaching for a book or if you want to put a candle on and do little things like that for yourself it can involve those things but it can also involve um you know self-care can be as basic as just remembering to take your medication or your supplements every day or mm-hmm. remembering to book yourself in for those blood tests instead of you know missing doses of medication and missing medical appointments and kind of all of that formed this bigger picture of just making more time to look after myself and to stop beating myself up for being the sort of person that was a bit more prone to feeling anxious feeling Mm -hmm. more stressed and overwhelmed easily and generally just thinking thinking and feeling like there was something wrong with myself once I could understand that there wasn't I just had this I guess personality trait that around 20% of people do I could then implement things that help to nourish that and take care of that as if it was another child of my own. Um, Mm -hmm. And that then helps me become less anxious, less stressed. I managed to break out of these. I would go through anxiety and depression cycles for pretty much my whole life because, you know, being a HSP is something that you're just born as. It's just something that's part of you. You don't develop it as such. Um, So my whole life I'd been the sort of child and adult that would cycle through feeling depressed for a few months and really hopelessly depressed and then eventually coming out of it for a few months and then entering back into feeling depressed and I could never quite pinpoint why that was I could never find a common trigger or yeah I I just really struggled to understand and that would often then be accompanied with anxiety as well because I just I I felt like I could never get on top of what was wrong with me Mm -hmm. um yes and then once I understood this HSP thing, and like I said, I just started looking after myself better in the ways that HSPs often need to, but don't realize they need. Mm. I was able to break this cycle because I was no longer getting to the point of feeling overwhelmed of feeling like I was burning out and running myself thin. And yeah, feeling like I always needed to be working towards another thing instead of just being more mindful and more happy of what is going on right now. Mm. Um, And it just shifted my whole kind of mental health and perspective. And that feeds into when you have a chronic illness so much. Um, It's all just so, yeah, interconnected. And yeah, I I rambled on a bit, but I guess that is where I feel like the connection is with being a HSP and having health conditions. I think they really kind of feed into each other. No, I friggin' love the ramble. And (laughs) I've been talking lately a lot about overstimulation. I'm actually going to do a video on this because it's such a common theme. I have a, a kiddo and so kids are are classically overstimulated. Mm-hmm. You you know this. They loud sounds. I know I noticed with with my kid if we go into a large crowd, she'll start to get kind of antsy. And I noticed that I'm the same way. <laughs> and I was thinking how we think of overstimulation in the context of being a kid because children just maybe they have more sensitive sensory you know outputs inputs but we as adults, especially HSPs, also get overstimulated. And we mm-hmm. can get overstimulated 
a lot easier if we are truly an HSP. Mm-hmm. For me, it's if I am around a lot of people, which is funny because I would consider myself an extrovert, but I also am an introvert because I like being by myself. Mm-hmm. I can be by myself and not need to be around other people. Whereas a true extrovert, they always need to be around someone. So what I find is when I'm in a big group of people, there's lots, I don't know about you guys, but going into Walmart, for example, or Target or one of those bigger chains, I leave, sometimes I actually get dizzy. And mm-hmm. I and I think I, I've had moments where I felt like I was gonna pass out. And when I leave the store, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing, oh wait, I think I'm an HSP. I think I have sensory input issues, right? Not mm-hmm. issues, but I'm sensitive to, you think about these places, they're super bright, mm-hmm. they're huge, there's tons of activity, so many people. And then HSPs, we feel energy, right? So we're feeling the energy from all of these different humans walking around us all at the same time. Mm-hmm. and. So to your point, I have also started to be mindful of how I can keep my baseline healthy so that if I do have to go to Target, which I know sounds super <laughs> lame, I'm going to brace myself for my Target <laughs> trip, but it's true. If I do have to go to Target, make sure I go for a walk first, right? Mm-hmm. Or make sure that that day I did my breath work or put my feet on the wall or some other healing modality so that when I do go, my nervous system because my nervous system has to be a notch below that baseline before I go into these these scenarios or else I will leave feeling overwhelmed and frantic. Mm-hmm. So I think we should talk about this more in general. Like this this conversation should be had more often about we as adults also get overstimulated and that can come out as rage, that can come out as anxiety, depression, that can come out as just being super about everything, Mm. just like kids. And yet for some reason, I don't see this being talked about as much. Mm -hmm. It's funny how you notice the, how you talked about the thing with children as well. My, my little boy is almost two. And so we're very much in the throes of like toddlerhood right now. Oh my Um, gosh. Oh, can I just give you like a little fist bump, like some solidarity because it's so hard. I was crying to Jesse two weeks ago. I had to literally cancel a podcast episode because I was so distraught with motherhood. So I'm with you. It is so freaking hard. It's like, I don't even know. Yeah. Some days I just am like, I don't know how to do this. It's, um, it's, it's quite an up and down emotional roller coaster. But um, yeah, I think being a, a HSP as a parent myself um, has made me better equipped in some ways to deal with the highs and lows that you get with toddlers. Because um, yes, I get like more overly, easily overly stimulated. So if he's having a day where he's having lots of tantrums and it's just quite difficult, um, I will, you know, sit down and cry before lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just how it is and I have to have that cry and have the emotional release that's part of being a HSP kind of bring my cortisol down by having a good cry and then be able to move on and get on with my day but it's made me a better person a better parent in the way that toddlers and HSPs are actually quite similar and I've said this to my husband because my husband is is great with the little one but there are some things that only I understand with him because I, I notice him getting overstimulated in the way that I notice myself getting overstimulated and I will plan our days. So he's at nursery and um, sort of in childcare two days a week. And I take care of him on my own the other three days a week. And um, on those three days a week, I'll generally plan our days around either going out in the morning or afternoon, but not both because if we go out in the morning, we'll have a quiet afternoon and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I've noticed works best for not just him in terms of keeping him well balanced as a toddler and not too overstimulated but it's what I need as well Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm out all day 
by the evening I'm just like a hot mess I I'm completely overstimulated and overwhelmed um and it's just not a good place to be and so a lot of it is like so applicable from not just me but to my child and what will soon be two toddlers and two children as well (laughs) Um, a lot of it is transferable or I have friends who fall within like the neurodivergent spectrum so they've got autism or ADHD and a lot of it can sort of pass over there as well in terms of noticing if, if someone's getting overstimulated or there are certain triggers within an environment and um yeah the way I look at being HSP now is that it's such a valuable and useful trait to have but a few years ago I seriously thought there was something really really wrong with me that people mm. you know, the doctors and I saw so many therapists and psychologists that they just weren't picking up on um, and once you tune into it and understand what it is it can be such a useful tool not just for yourself but for those around you as well. I'm curious, what are some of the ways that you would find it useful? Because I completely agree. And I'm, I'm just, what are some things that come up for you that being an HSP has helped on your life journey? Um, so in terms of within like social circles, if I'm hosting a party or maybe a get together at my house and there's a group of friends, being an introvert as well, it's never a big party. So there might be six to eight people at most, including myself. But um yeah I've got a couple of friends who have autism or on the um, autistic spectrum and I'm able to notice when things are starting to get overwhelmed and in the past I've kind of just discreetly pulled them to one side and said you're free to go upstairs and have a lie down on my bed for as long as you need and they'll go up and they'll come down 45 minutes later feeling much better and it's just having the ability to sense those things that being a HSP you you notice those signs in yourself as well as others getting overwhelmed yeah. Um, but you also pick up on the little things in an environment that can make a difference. So turning a lamp on over here or shutting that door or, you know, if you notice that perhaps an elderly relative is a bit cold and you will think, oh, I'll just quickly throw a blanket over them. Mm. The HSPs tend to be those sort of people that pick up on the little kind of nuances and the little things that can help make a, I guess, contribute to have a bigger impact. to the Yeah, like deep empathy. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, it all kind of really interlinks. Um, with my toddler, he, I'm unsure as a toddler, I'm unsure if he's if he's going to be a HSP too, if he's just a toddler right now, mm-hmm. because there are so many similarities, but um, it helps me day to day in that I find he doesn't have a lot of tantrums because I'm able to kind of, I guess, prevent it by eliminating or removing the things that would lead to that place like mm. planning our day out so that we don't get too tired or too overstimulated um, and even within our environment we I only have x amount of toys out available for him to play with because if there's any more than that he starts getting overwhelmed and they get thrown and then that escalates into a tantrum and then I'm getting angry at him and actually if I can just manage the environment by keeping it not overstimulating we both just have a better day. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just things like that, that now that it's just a part of how I live day to day, it makes a lot of sense to me. But five years ago, it's not something that would have been on my radar at all. Yeah. I feel like too, with being highly sensitive, I, I mentioned this in, in our episode with Alyssa too, is that I kind of like, was like, chuckled against hearing about an HSP. I was like, I am not sensitive. And I always thought (laughs) that that was a superpower because growing up being strong, independent, 
not feeling anything was, was like a good thing in our family. And the, the more sensitive ones in our family, um, weren't as strong is like the, the, the image and the, the dialogue that I was given as a young child. So being sensitive to me was being weak. It was terrible, you know, and, and also for sensitivity, I just thought of that as like crying. And I'm like, nah, I don't cry about all everything. Like I'm not sensitive at all. And it wasn't until like my husband kept bringing this up and he was like, no, like the stuff that you're talking about, um, the overstimulation, the amount that that would cause and wreak havoc on my physical health and my mental health, because I would get so worked up about things. Like I, I couldn't, I, I would walk two miles home from work in a snowstorm because I couldn't get on the bus because there were too many people and there were, there were too many things going on. And then like, it would just, it would be too overwhelming for me, especially when I was in a bad place with my health. Like when I went through a really bad thyroid flare, I lived in Chicago and I had to take like the, the train or I had to take the bus. And for me, it was, it was better for me to walk home because then to be that close to other people or um, kind of like you're talking about the sensitivity with like, I, whenever I would go to restaurants, I was so focused on other people's energy. Like I could tell if someone was like having a fight or if a server was, you know, not having a good day or all these things. And I couldn't bring myself back to my own energy. And it would, it would just like wreak havoc on my mental and physical health. And it, like once I started realizing a, that being a highly sensitive person doesn't mean that you cry all the time. Although I will say <laughs> now that I've like gotten over the like sensitivity means weak thing, I cry way more than I did before, but like, it doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't necessarily mean there's so much more to sensitivity and sensitivity can be a superpower. Like what you're talking about, the fact that we can, I totally resonate with like, I just notice things I can tell when people are uncomfortable and I, I know how to, to help in those situations. And I think that, um, yeah, sometimes we see sensitivity or I did at least as a, as a weakness. And it can be, if you let it overpower your physical and mental health, but it also can be, you know, a superpower for sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people who, who will resonate with being a HSP probably heard the term oh you're, you're just so sensitive you're so oversensitive growing up um and I heard that because I was the sort of child that would cry about everything find mm -hmm. a lot of things upsetting overstimulating um I one example that comes to mind was this was before I understood or even heard the term HSP um it was my um, bridal shower before my wedding um, and it'd been quite a full on day for the afternoon. We'd had like a, a garden party sort of thing. And then some of the guests left, some of them stayed. And for the ones that stayed, we had like music and karaoke and drinks and things like that. Um, and by the time the day was done, I just cried and I felt so sad. And I people were saying, was it not the day you wanted? Did something go wrong? Did we forget to do something? And I couldn't explain at the time why, why I felt so sad. And looking back now, I was clearly so overstimulated mm -hmm. in that environment that there was too much going on. I'd hugely organized most of it myself as a as someone who really struggled at the time to let go of any control because <laughs> that's how I controlled the anxiety as well. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it's so clear now looking back and similarly to things like in my childhood, um, I can see why I was the sort of child that cried a lot because I was one of nine children. I grew up in a really busy house where there was always a lot of noise, a lot of chaos, a lot of everything going on all the time. Um, and so that, I guess my baseline of stimulation was always very high. So it only took something minor to tip me over the edge. And so, of course, I was just kind of letting all this out in, in terms of crying and those kind of feelings then partnered up with um, no one around me that kind of got it because all I heard was, oh, you're so sensitive or, mm -hmm. oh, you cry at everything. And especially as women as well, we, we just get sort of put down to, we yeah. get a lot of things put down to our crazy emotions and hormones <laughs> and whatnot. So <laughs> that mm. doesn't help either. But yeah, going back to what you're saying about picking up on even other people's vibes and feelings, if you go out to a restaurant as well. I know that for me, one of the big steps I've taken in kind of doing the right things, for my HSP trait and also my chronic illness is learning how to spot like more toxic relationships and toxic friendships and ones that essentially just draw energy from mm. you and um, contribute to you feeling more drained and just overall quite rubbish and bad um, mm. and spending more time putting energy into relationships that make you feel more energized or more fulfilled. Um, yeah, that has also been such a huge part of understanding all of this because I used to give so much of myself to so many people that didn't really deserve it and mm. even people that weren't inherently bad but they were the kind of people that you'd spend a couple of hours with them having a coffee and all they would do for two hours was just moan about life and complain right. about life and you'd come away like I'd come away also feeling very negative and I'd soon be picking up and copying those traits if I spent too much time with those sorts of people and when you're living with chronic illness if you get stuck in a hopeless place like that, it's, it's very dark and it's mm -hmm. hard to make any kind of progress. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. I love that we dove so heavily into the HSP world because I know we, well, I wasn't on that episode with Alyssa. Alyssa? Yeah. Yeah. Alyssa. Yeah. I love having different perspectives because mm -hmm. we all have different journeys that we go on when it comes to being an HSP. And I like that Rachel has given us, especially as it relates to the parent toddler analogy, I think mm -hmm. that would be really good, even for people who don't have kids to nurture our inner child, you know, mm -hmm. even if we don't actually have a child, I would love to shift course a little bit because I had some specific questions for you, Rachel, just <laughs> having fangirled on you a little bit before the episode. And I listened to another podcast that you were on. I loved what you had to say. I am curious if you, I want to dive into a little bit of the, some of the things that have really helped your journey because getting into remission from Hashimoto's is a really big deal. That's the goal of everyone who has Hashimoto's, right? They don't want to have this disease process happening in their body. We're often told that that's not even possible for antibodies to get down to remission. I would love to know what are some of the things that you could even narrow it down to three to five that you would really attribute to your healing journey and getting to a place where you can be in remission. I just think that's such a great feat. And I'd love to dive more into that for myself, selfishly, but also our listeners. <laughs> yeah, uh, so probably not not what you want to hear, but it kind of happened by accident. It's not something that I set my sights on and kind of thought I'm going to get my Hashimoto's into remission and that's my goal. Um, 
I was first diagnosed with hypothyroidism, uh, like Jesse, and then later on the, oh yes, you also have Hashimoto's kind of came along with it a bit with a bit of extra testing. Um, and at the time, I just didn't really understand what the difference was. Um, I started to get more clued up as I researched, you know, reading studies, books, websites, blogs, listening to podcasts, doing all the things, trying to gather as much information as I could about the sort of interventions and the parts of my life that I could improve upon to improve my health. Um, and through that, I learned that um, a lot of thyroid patients, especially those with Hashimoto's, feel better removing gluten. Um, so I went gluten-free. Um, I checked for things like low iron, ferritin, B12, vitamin D, um, and supplemented. I was pretty much low and anemic in all of those. Um, so supplementing those helped a lot. Um, I used to do intense, crazy cardio um, pretty much every day of the week. And I used to go for walks for like a couple hours a day. Um, I used to essentially at that time have an eating disorder. And um, I used exercise as a way to offset if I ate too much food, which at the time I wasn't even eating enough food anyway, because the thyroid condition had spiraled my weight and it would fluctuate a lot. And that then fueled into an eating disorder and disordered eating behavior and using exercise in a bad way as well. So a big part of me getting my health back on track was getting help for the eating disorder. And like I mentioned before, looking at viewing exercise in a different way as a way to look after my body and remembering that being able to exercise is actually a privilege. It shouldn't be a punishment. Um, and yeah, looking at food as more than just calories in and calories mm -hmm. out, which I think a lot of us are just bombarded with that way of thinking so much these days that a lot of us don't actually realize that we have disordered eating behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to let go of those beliefs and yeah, focus on eating more, just more wholesome and more nutritionally overall, um, as opposed to just calories. Um, and yeah, a lot of that was the foundation. Um, and by kind of piecing these things together and implementing them over a couple of years, um, I then retested my third antibody levels just as an off chance to see what they were doing and they it had come into remission and so I'd I'd never actually set out to I'm going to do all these things to get my antibodies lowered I just thought I'm going to do all these things because this is what their patients kind of do and this is what other people are saying help them and these aspects I know I need to get my eating disorder under control I know that I'm not exercising in a way that's helping me it's only hindering me further and I kind of targeted these key areas and almost by chance, I guess, my thyroid, my Hashimoto's antibodies came back into normal limits and close to zero. And, you know, by that definition in remission. And at that point, I, I, there was a real moment of me understanding just how important all of these different areas of our lives are and how it's so, so important to not, not just blindly take this one pill a day and just expect it to solve everything that it's every aspect of our lives. It's our sleep hygiene and how how much we value getting good sleep and creating a good sleep environment and getting to bed at 9 p.m. if that's what it takes to get a good amount of sleep so that your your battery is topped up for the next day and building in time to unwind and if it's your thing, meditate or just find some way to de-stress, um, to eat better for yourself. And that doesn't always mean eating tasteless food and it doesn't always mean cooking really elaborate meals that take three hours to prepare either um <clears throat> it's it involves sort of being mindful of your blood sugar and 
eating things that are abundant in healthy proteins and fats and things like that instead of reaching for chocolate or yeah it's it's just all these things that you do day to day Mm -hmm. small little tweaks and changes that you can do here and there um that form this much bigger picture and that is what I guess got my Hashimoto's into remission I I don't have like a, a miracle supplement that I took though I don't have anything crazy to sell to people I just right. I did all these I guess little pieces that affected my day-to-day that overall has given me much better health my thyroid levels no longer before pregnancy anyway no longer bounce up and down and everything's been really stable for a good few years um and it's just through that looking at things way more holistically Mm. hell yeah can I ask one quick question just as like I'm over here just wondering and you kind of mentioned it Rachel so what is what constitutes remission for Hashimoto's is it zero antibodies or what what constitutes that um it's it's debated you'll find some sources that say they need to be absolutely zero um what I find I tend to follow a lot of sources such as Isabella Wentz, who's quite big um, mm. in the thyroid world. Um, and more of those sources will say that it's having Hashimoto level, Hashimoto antibody levels back within the normal limits. So I think for thyroid peroxidase antibodies, I believe the range is something like 0 to 34. Um, and when mine fell at 14, I was like, okay, great. I'm in remission because... Yeah. <clears throat> that range determines that you don't have Hashimoto. So a healthy person without Hashimoto's might have eight or 28, mm-hmm. but they fall within that range and they don't have Hashimoto. So if your levels fall back within that, it's as if you don't have it. So it's, it's in remission. It's, I guess, not like active. Um, so yeah, that's mine have through pregnancy, they've stayed in remission, which is very normal anyway, just because of the way that your immune system and your immune function shifts within pregnancy. Um, it's then very normal for it to come out after pregnancy, um, which is what happened last time. And then I worked with a functional medicine practitioner to implement some things around sort of adrenal health and gut health to help get that back under control again. Um, mm-hmm. well, of course, gut health is such a huge part of it as well. I don't know. Huge, huge, yeah. huge, huge. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, my gut has always had issues and I dealt with some IBS type things my entire life and just never even knew gut health was a thing. I've been learning even that there are estrogen, I can't remember if it's estrogen metabolite receptor. Basically, <laughs> our gut is a big deal. Yeah. And it even influence our, influences our hormones, which means it can also influence our thyroid. And I'm going to be TMI right now because we're all friends. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I look in the toilet after I go because we want to be looking for those threes and fours on the Bristol stool chart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think a lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people... They just assume that whatever they're doing is, well, okay, cool, whatever. They never even think, well, maybe loose stools is not normal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I was for years of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or even the other way. I, I talk about constipation so much. I don't even care if it, if it like, upsets people anymore. Right. <laughs> no one talks about this stuff. No one realizes that it's not normal to not go to the toilet. I mean, for me, for years, all the way through childhood and up until about four or five years ago, I would only go to the toilet for a bowel movement once every two weeks. And I thought mm-hmm. that was genuinely normal because no one talks about it. Right. <laughs> wow. why we need to talk about it. We do. That, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people deal with that. I had a client who had that same and 
it, it can be really uncomfortable and cause other issues because we detox through one of the detox pathways is, is by pooping. Mm -hmm. And if we're not pooping on a regular basis, all those toxins are just backing up in our body. If you mm -hmm. want to think of it in a very simplistic sense. So that makes sense too, that being constipated can have a cascade of other issues being that now your body's trying to handle toxins, toxin overload. Mm -hmm. So yeah, poop is my friend. I talk about it all the time. <laughs> That's like, honestly, like stomach issues and gut issue. Well, at the time I thought it was stomach issues, but like, um, that's how they found my hypothyroid because I, um, I had all the normal things, right. I was tired, but I had just been out of college and I was kind of depressed, but I had also just broke up in a relationship and all I had like the, the symptoms of Hashimoto's and hypothyroid that are considered normal, you know, like everybody's tired, everybody's stressed, everybody, whatever. Um, but I wasn't able to go to the bathroom. And then when I would go, I like, I would get like very sick to my stomach and I would have excruciating pain. And then it got to the point where like, that was all it ever was. I was either constipated or I could literally eat the most bland diet. And I would still get really sick to my stomach and have like horrible stomach pains and all this stuff. So they checked me for celiac and it came back negative, which I don't even know if those are accurate or not, but that's what they tested. And then thankfully this doctor, just like a random doctor was like, you know, I've seen this before with people who have thyroid issues. Why don't we check that? And my thyroid was like way off. So granted, she didn't look into anything outside of just the TSH stuff. So I didn't find out the Hashimoto's or anything else until later. But at that time, at that time, that was still huge for me because I didn't realize how like nobody thinks really that like stomach issues are a thyroid issue, but mm. it can be like if your gut is off, if you're not going to the bathroom correctly, like it's all connected and the thyroid affects unfortunately, literally everything. Mm. <laughs> so like, you know, all these symptoms that we think are just normal or don't, don't seem like they're connected to thyroid can be for sure. Shout out to your gut being ridiculous for getting you diagnosed. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, Positive spin. Yeah. I'm like, it worked out. Everything sort of kind of worked out. <laughs> Rachel, before we wrap up, I do want to make sure we go back to one thing you mentioned, because I want this to be on blast billboard. Huge. <laughs> you mentioned about your activity, changing up your exercise. This is the number one issue I see when it comes to overexertion and exhaustion with chronically ill, even just chronically ill doesn't necessarily have to be thyroid. So for me personally, I have recently started doing more band workouts, like mini band workouts. So even strength training was starting to be too much for me. And so I started going into mini band workouts. I go for long walks and my body feels so much better. And I know a lot about how the body works being a personal trainer. So I know that really muscle just needs tension and adequate recovery. And it can get that in a variety of ways, right? It can be through body weight. It can be through bands. It can be through weights. So I just really resonate with what you said about finding activity levels that work for you. Because again, our, our, I think we go back to what are these expectations? Well, you're supposed to work out 60 minutes, five times a week. I just can't do that. I'm about 30 minutes, three days a week. And then the other days I walk for about an hour and not always at the same time. It's usually like 30 minutes and then another 30 minutes. And that's made a massive impact on my energy and my just desire to work out in general, because at one point I started to resent it because I was exhausted all the time. So I just right. love that you brought that up and I wanted to really pull that out and highlight that 
that for those of us who are chronically ill, sometimes we do have to slow down to speed up. Mm -hmm. And if we do maybe want to get back to weight training, we're going to have to find a balance, be it that we have a week off during our period or things like that. So. Yeah, it's um, like you say, it's it's a huge issue that I see in so many thyroid patients that come to me asking what they can do about it. Um, and I think it's hard as well. If you were a very active person before having and developing a health condition such as thyroid disease, it's really hard when you're then hit with this health condition and you can no longer keep up with the pace and the stamina and the frequency that you used to. I understand that. Um, but what we often see when it comes to thyroid flares is that people get stuck in this, this kind of really non-helpful cycle of doing lots of exercise and doing all the things and running around. And then after so long, their body crashes and then they're forced to rest. And then they rest so much that they can't do any exercise at all, but then they get better and then they go back to the top of the cycle again and they start doing all the, all the exercise. And I'm sure we've probably all been there, right? And we were probably all there for a good couple of years before we realized that this just wasn't working. Um, and um, yeah, I was that person. I, like I said before, I, I saw exercise as a means for me to, to lose weight, to control what my body looks like and as a result, I wasn't doing it for the right reasons. And I wasn't tuning into what my body was trying to tell me, which was this exercise is fast tracking your, your health diagnosis and it's making it all worse. And you're never going to get on top of your health if you don't stop doing crazy exercise, which is driving your cortisol through the roof, <laughs> upsetting your sex hormones and giving you like estrogen dominance. And then your periods have gone all crazy. And it has such a huge knock-on effect and then your gut health and your immune function and then you're getting sick all the time and yeah just taking a step back and really going back to basics and revisiting what the type of exercise is that you're doing and it doesn't have to be crazy cardio going out for hour-long runs every day like your friend does it can be going from like you say walks where you can take a slower walk one day if your body's feeling up to it you can go for a fast walk or go more uphill the next day a lot of people get on better with swimming cycling hiking yoga. is another good one mm. yeah yoga yoga is great to throw in there as well um I personally like dancing um before getting to the stage in my pregnancy um, <laughs> I used to do salsa dancing uh, which was great fun because you don't even really notice no, you don't even notice that you're exercising you're having so much fun um anything like that works in terms of the type of exercise but then you still need to fine-tune the frequency you know you might not you might not be able to go for a 5k run every day anymore but mm -hmm. you might be able to go for um a quick 10 minute jog every day or maybe you just do a 5k run once a week or you need to switch entirely to walking um for me personally i get out and i walk every day um right now with pregnancy i also do yoga and, and swimming every week but before being at this point I would do um like two dance classes a week and some weeks I would be able to manage that absolutely fine other weeks I could do that and then I'd stay for like the next dance session and do two hours in a row because I could just feel that my body was up for it and other weeks I just couldn't like even go for a five minute walk and it's so important to tune into that because if you don't you're just going to keep setting yourself backwards and that's never going to be um that's never going to be the right route to recovery and actually getting things under control. But it's so important to keep in mind that it's so much better to be fluid and flexible and keep tuning into your body rather than just 
I guess staying static and doing the same thing forevermore, it just doesn't make sense. At different points yeah. in your life, you will have more energy and more time and more just headspace as well to do certain things. And I'm you know, soon going to be a, a really busy mum of two young children. I will have less time to exercise and my exercise may just look like if I get out for a 10 minute walk each day or manage to squeeze <laughs> in yoga when they've gone bed, that will be a huge achievement. And I will, I will have to learn to be kinder on myself um, in acknowledging that or finding other ways to squeeze exercise in, like using the stairs instead of taking the lift or, you know, just getting creative, dancing whilst you're doing your housework and things like that. We, we really do, underscoring all of this, we really do just need to learn to be kinder to ourselves and listen to ourselves over what everyone else is saying. We need to tune out what social media, the news, friends and family, co-workers, what everything else is telling us to do and just go back to basics and rediscover what our body is telling us to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree. And it kind of um, segues into a question. That I'm proud. I probably asked you this in our last podcast, but a question that we like to ask all of our guests and you, you mentioned it with walking, but what, I think it was walking. Um, what is something that you like to do every day that keeps you feeling your best? Um, yeah, definitely walking. I think for me, it, exercise has to make you feel more energized it shouldn't make you feel more depleted or more fatigued and walking is is one of the only as well as yoga one of the only types of exercise that does that for me and it's it's not just the physical act of walking it's that when I'm out walking I make it a no phone zone I'm Mm. making sure that I'm aware of the breeze on my face of I'm saying hello to the people that I pass in the street it's a whole experience that's good for you know mind body and soul I guess Mm -hmm um that is definitely a big thing for me every day and if I don't get out the house even for a short walk um I soon start to notice it physically and mentally yeah I am an avid walker it has changed my entire life and I completely agree with you it's (laughs) so soothing and I used to kind of dread it until I did just that started living more in the moment I'm very nerdy. I'll try to find like fractal patterns in trees and different <laughs> shrubs. So this has been so fun. Thank you for being on and all of your insight. I love that you go so deep into these topics, which I know just means you care. Is there a place where people can connect with you online if they want to learn more? Yeah, so um, you've got my website, which is theinvisiblehypothyroidism.com. Um, that's the best place to go in terms of getting lots of lots of varied information I've got almost 600 blogs and articles on there now I think um, but I'm also active on Facebook and uh, Instagram especially so you can always come and join in the conversation over there um, obviously can't give medical advice I'm not a medical professional but I'm all about um, encouraging that community so that you can find your tribe and, and find the people that will relate to what you're going through um, and then there's there's also my books uh, Be Your Own Thyroid Advocate and You Me and Hypothyroidism and my email newsletters um, that go out every couple of weeks and they just give you a roundup of everything that I'm up to but also everything going on in the thyroid sphere so things like thyroid podcasts for people to listen to um, and yeah just just doses of inspiration motivation things to kind of help you on your own thyroid journey yeah I love that. We'll make sure to have everything linked, um, in the, in the show notes. So if people would like to follow you or get your book or anything like that, that they will be able to do that. So thank you again so much for being on today. We really appreciated having you back and yeah. Thanks again for being on. Thank you so much for having me.